Welcome to A Regenerative Future with Matt Powers. I'm your host, Matt Powers. And I'm still in, in the studio, still making music and having fun in this lockdown. But I wanted to deviate just for a moment from the soil regenerative soil talks to talk with my friend Alan Booker. A little bit about life, a little bit about engineering, a little bit about the language and the rigor and business side of regeneration of permaculture. And Alan, Alan's incredible. If you're, you know, an entrepreneur, thinking about entrepreneurship, thinking about how are are you gonna get kind of out of this situation? Because, you know, jobs are becoming more scarce. Um, pay is becoming less and less as cost of living is going up. Inflation is going to skyrocket. We need to be able to create things that can shift with inflation. We need to be able to create things that can we can shift maybe the actual um, currency that we're, we're charging. You know, We need to be able to be adaptive to the times and entrepreneurs, people who own their own business, people who actually create real things teach people real skills and coach people have real change in their lives, have the ability to adapt to the times. And it's increasingly something that I am thinking about because January 2021, our future, the online conference, it was originally supposed to be in person and it was like a three-day in-person event and camping and but we've reimagined it to be even better. And we've already got even more speakers um, to add to the incredible speakers we already had. We have people that, you know, you know. <laughs> and I don't want to give anything away yet. Um, but I invite Alan in this interview to that event and it's not really publicly talked about yet. You can go, of course, to www.r-future.world and look at what's there. I haven't revealed the full lineup, haven't revealed the schedule, but it's free. So, and there, there's a download option, there's a goodie bag option, there's a membership option, but it's a free online event for entrepreneurs, new and old, um, experienced and not, whether you need information and motivation, inspiration to get you started, or you need a recharge and a refresh and some perspective to navigate these waters that we're in right now. It's going to be a, and it's open to, uh, to the public so everyone can participate. You can share it with everyone. Um, it's going to be open for a full week. After it airs live over the course of the weekend, it's going to have questions, a workbook, I'm going full all the way in because we really need it right now. We need a path. And with Alan, it's like we need to ask the right questions. So good. And that's why I asked Alan to be a speaker, to ask these questions that we talk about to a degree in this podcast and YouTube show. And asking these questions to drive our businesses, to strengthen them, to make them resilient to make them the most effective change-making systems and patterns that they can be. And, and, and so we, we talk about a lot of different things. It's a crazy world that we're living in and I feel like it's really important to just, you know, talk about what is going on. 
and and we also talk uh, about entrepreneurship. So if you're interested in these things, this podcast is going to dive deep into those areas. And like I said, we'll, we talk about our, our future, um, the online entrepreneurship conference that's sponsored by Fungi Perfecti, Herbworks, and Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds currently. And I'm actually talking to more sponsors right now. And um, speakers, we have Neil Speckman, who has greened you know, the desert in Saudi Arabia. We have Trad Cotter, you know, co-founder of Mushroom Mountain. We have William Padilla Brown, founder of MycoFest and MycoSymbiotics. We have Rishi Strauss, an incredible connective expert on mycology, herbology, and striving and thriving in, in a world of constant change. She's a, she's a world traveler. She's doing so many different disciplines and different, thi- different things, excuse me. We have so many speakers. You can go and see um, over a dozen of the speakers at www.r-future.world. It's going to be life-changing and it's free because I am so concerned about the way the world is today, where we're headed. Uh, I mean, in this interview, I even asked you know, Alan if he has kids because he's thinking generationally so much. And, and he, he doesn't, but he's really addressing some of the things that so many of us who have children or thinking about ever having children are facing. Yeah, so I just wanted to tell you what our future is so that you could check it out, you could sign up, and, and you could tell people about it. But I'm not talking about it yet, even though I am talking about it. <laughs> because I'm not, I'm not completely, I, I, I'm, I'm wanting more sponsors. I'm, I'm waiting back to hear from some absolutely incredibly amazing and famous speakers that we all know and love and would love to hear the story of them creating their incredible business that we all know and love. And so we're going to get advanced training, workshops, and all this stuff. And I just wanted, wanted to give you context before, before you get to that and you're like, what is this? Um, so that's, that's, that's real and that's something that's going to happen, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about it, but I'm not talking about it. Um, really the thing that I should be talking about is the fact that the Advanced Permaculture Student Online, of which Alan is a teacher in, is relaunching for the 2020-2021 season. And it's starting mid-November, November 16th, and it has live interaction, it's monthly lives, it has Q&A, it has expert feedback, it has over 70 experts, it has over 180 hours. And it's, an, and it's a truly an official PDC, but it goes beyond just getting, doing your design. And this is the first ever offer this, but it's the advanced PDC where you turn that, that piece of paper design or computer design into something real, which is where all these skills and ideas get challenged and get honed into the reality of fluency and, and of truly understanding, be able to do these things. And that's why you need a community. That's why you need lifetime access. And, and that's what APSO is, the Advanced Permaculture Student Online. And we're starting a new season. It's going to be more incredible than ever. We have so many people in our community. We have so many educators now. And you're not going to want to miss this. There's a reason why students say it's the best course they've ever taken. There's a reason people say it's the best PDC they've ever taken. 
There's a reason that students, after you know, going through it multiple times, are still taking it, participating in it, because they get deeper learning every time. They love learning with other people. They love helping other people on their journey. So it's a community of support. It's a whole lot of fun. And I hope you'll check it out because it's 60% off for the People Care Scholarship and then it's 30% and even 50% off depending on which option and prizes and bonuses you choose because there's a triple bonus on one and it, it, it's wild and crazy over there. <laughs> if you go to the advanced, no, if you go to advancedpermaculturestudent.online so advancedpermaculturestudent.online and you can check that out as well with the sales that just went live last night. And um, this is the only time of year that it goes down to this threshold um, and it never goes lower. So this is the time to sign up for the Advanced Permaculture Student Online. Just want to put that out there because um, that's what I should be doing. <laughs> All right, so Alan is absolutely wise in, a, in an engineering mindset way and it's completely different from my creative you know music or art kind of way and it's it's really really vital to I feel like have these conversations across the the um, the way mental patterns you know uh, the different um, uh, learner modalities uh, having that reaches so many more people and then creates these bridges of understanding that allows people to suddenly become more of an engineer, logical, you know, or suddenly become more creative, more nature connected. And, and Alan really is that making that, bridging that gap himself. And I'm trying to do it the same way, just the opposite. And it's, and it's really fun. And so this is a fun conversation dives really deep and um, opens up new areas for exploration for everyone. So I hope that you like it and uh, thanks for listening. So are you back at your main homestead now? I know you had to kind of scramble with all the fires there for a little bit. There's been consistent fires. We've had two fires in the past two weeks on mm -hmm. our road. Um, we're kind of on a back road in a, you know, a lower income uh, housing area and there's homeless people that tend to camp out on the road further down from us and there's one lane and the last fire had an rv broken down blocking one side of it and the fire was on the other so it's been it's been super stressful i've uh i mean it's part of the reason why i don't like talk about any of this online because it's it's just, um, it's, I mean, there's no like real solution other than like moving, right? And, um, and everyone's kind of, in California is kind of in a similar situation. I mean, we're in Sonoma. We've had fire evacuations. There's, there's so much wind up here and it's so dry. And we actually have been out of water for three months on the site. So it's one of those sites that's coastal, but it's all like um, geologically it is porous and so it can't hold water uh yes. and, and so you know it's been leached and and, and um it's, it's designed so that the water can pass through and but that makes it so that the dry seasons become very brutal as the climate has continued to shift into this drought pattern 
And, and so, um, you have to be really drastic with anything you do. I mean, the mm -hmm. fire break they created was six highway lanes wide and that was effective, but it's, mm -hmm. it's like, that's a little wider than most people's property. You know what I mean? In California. Right. And, yeah. and so, and so we're kind of in a real awkward position. Um, and so I think that it's like this weight that's kind of on everyone's mind and mine too. And I've been kind of escaping through writing this book um, mm -hmm. and hiding in my <laughs> office and trying to forget about my gardens, you know, dying. Uh, because yeah. this summer I, I just didn't have water and I had to be picky and be like, okay, well, I have 50 turmeric plants of every color this is what I'm going, this is the hill I will die on. And obviously, metaphorically, because um, we we're literally on top of a hill. But uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's been hard. It's been a real hard season and year. And I know, you know, so many people have had it much worse. You know, I mean, people have lost loved ones. Um, people's mm -hmm. businesses have been just abolished. Uh, by the current uh, situation, so I'm 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 extremely grateful, and and we're we are very very blessed to be able to have demand for my work and have people so many so many people excited about it and 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 to be uh, in the position we are. But yeah, just you know, just a <laughs> fire situation as it is. We um, that's kind of where my head's been at. So. And then thinking about, you know, the future for our, my boys who are 10 and 14, um, yes. it's, it's really frightening when you kind of think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I saw one of your videos not too long ago and was like, that's James. I'm, I'm, I met James once at Permaculture Voices 2. And uh, that's been a few years back. So he's... Uh, He's, he's uh, matured an awful lot. It's amazing. He's almost as tall as me. He just turned 14. Yep. And he can play guitar way better than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's getting more and more interesting. Um, but I think... I think the fact is that enough of the chickens are coming home to roost that a, a sizable percentage of people are finally starting to like scratch their heads and ask questions. Right. Because mo most things don't make sense. And that's kind of what our community has been saying. And that's why yes. in many ways my business model was prepared for this reality. I was mm -hmm. online, I had all my, my, my things digital. It doesn't make it any less painful seeing it all happen. Um, it, right. And it, it hurts to see, to say yes. that this is going to happen and then to see it happen. See it happen, right. Yeah, and we're not done. It's just going to keep on going in this direction unless we make some, I mean, it's sort of like you said, nothing can be done, but it's like, well, yeah, something could be done, but it would take coordinated action at the landscape scale in order to be able to repair the hydrology and soils at a scale that would do something practical. Uh, but, but, California, but California has tied our hands 
and they've made it so that just it's impossible for a construction company to make money making affordable housing with the, yeah. the permitting legal structure bureaucratic red tape so they don't mm -hmm. so we have this huge homeless population and that same kind of pattern applies to land and codes and 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 water harvesting and i mean almost you name it they've set up a scheme uh, to to prevent you from doing the right thing and it's, yeah. it's brutal. And so that's, that's what I mean. I mean, it's not impossible. Of course, it's not impossible. But they've made it so that it's fiscally outside of the realm of possibility for anyone. Except the 1%. And they're not sticking around because of the tax structure changes. And exactly. uh, they're getting out. Yeah, they're getting out of California. And they provide 40% of the, the tax base that California uses for all its services. So we're going to see all mm -hmm. the services take a huge dive right as the need for more sophisticated and smart services rises. Mm -hmm. Yes. Whew. You know, I think, I mean, there's one of those things, I think you actually hit it uh, later on in, in uh, Advanced Permaculture Student Online, which is mutual aid, right? Mm -hmm. And mutual aid networks and so forth. And um, I did a, a class that Pina, um, uh, you know, uh, um, sponsored from with Zeb Friedman out here from, um, I don't know if you know Zeb, he's at uh, Earth Haven out in North Carolina, but um, he's been doing a lot of work on mutual aid and mutual aid um, networks and so forth. And I think what's going to end up happening is if we keep on getting this and the, and the state governments keep on getting marginalized, they're just getting hit and hit and hit, <clears throat> that it's going to come back to where people, the way they're going to get by is to create mutual aid networks of some form or the other, whether they call it that or not. But at some point, if, you know, we, we, we went from early in the history of the United States where almost everybody was supported by mutual aid networks because the government hadn't taken that on yet. Right. And then throughout the 20, through the 20th century, we dismantled all of that and we basically pushed it all over into government programs. And now we're coming to the point where that top-down, extremely large-scale, out-of-human scale system of government aid is becoming untenable um, as resource, resources become more limited and so forth. And so I think you're going to start seeing that you'll have to um, just, you know, pop back to something much closer to mutual aid networks that we saw pre, you know, New Deal um, in order for people to be able to actually do something, you know, in a, in a, um, in a productive way uh, with what they have and, um, and, and in a, something that approaches human scale. And I feel like um, this, this, when we talk about like your work with like biocompatible and resilient design, um, so much of the stuff that we, we do, and even when, I, when I'm doing like regenerative soil and talking about the chemistry, it's like, these are things that we can like prove, we can show the logic and, and then we delve into the social <laughs> and the landscape just starts shifting. And it's very, it's very um, challenging but I completely agree that 
it's the social, the social networks of support, the mutual aid support. And I, I think that's part of what led me to, um, to permaculture. And it's something I haven't articulated perhaps um, for various reasons, but I, I've always had a food storage my, uh, in, uh, in our marriage. We've always tried to have a food storage. My wife and I, it's a practice her family did as part of the culture of being part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so the LDS or Mormon church um, has this bioregionalism built into it. And yes. because they pay tithing and they have bishops storehouses of, of dried goods, of, of fats, of you know, dried milk. And they literally, as part of that idea, started buying up farms and they own an incredible large percentage of the farmland in America. And it's dedicated not to making money, but to creating a surplus of food behind the scenes for these kind of events um, yes. so that they can be distributed and provided. And usually this is provided overseas. And that's why you, when you look up like humanitarian aid, almost always one of the first people or first groups there um, is the LDS church, but the bioregional aid where you have these families getting together, talking about their difficulties, talking about how they can help each other. Um, and it's a voluntary uh, based church. So people have to um, work for free and they're put into awkward things that they don't know how to do. And so we all kind of have to help each other out. And there's this understanding that like, we're all just figuring it out and learning. And that kind of like lowers the playing field. And I learned like all these like basic back to basics is what they call it, um, habits, canning, food preservation, um, food storage, you know, mylar vacuum sealed, you know, bins. I mean, this is, this is what, you know, what we have right here. This is um, apple cider vinegar, you know. Um, I've got, it's all moved around because in evacuations, um, what's the most valuable? Well, your six months supply of food <laughs> is incredibly valuable. And so, um, and, and yeah, and my seeds, which are right there. So, but, but I learned this the hard way because I, I've been, I was a musician and obviously musicians don't make consistent money. And so I've had to rely on the Bishop's storehouse. I've, I've been the one that's been eating the church welfare food because I couldn't afford um, food that month. And um, I, I contribute always in my tithing. And, 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 and that's like a critical piece. I mean, we can tithe in kind, like back in the day, like we give, you know, some seed to the, to the storehouse, the community storehouse. Um, but I honestly feel um, that the, this function was performed by you know churches and temples and these these vigorous community outlets like um, the community center. You remember the community center? Our kids would do the intramural sports there. The schools wouldn't do that. They had their own thing, but it wasn't like the real you know leagues for our kids. I did judo there. I learned karate there. I did art there. That's where all the you know the the art, the community art, our art galleries are. And 
it's this, th these kind of central nodes, churches, community centers, these things that we, that don't like the, the, the energy doesn't leave our community, the, the fiscal yep. you know, value doesn't leave our community. These kind of entities are missing. And I truly believe um, we need to revive them. Uh, I, 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 this year I not going to, to church, this year not going yeah, to church I, I has been hard. Yes, I think we've got to revive them because um, one of the things, because you know, I'm, I've been a systems engineer and a systems thinker for a long time, and one of the things people will come back and ask me about this whole, why don't you uh, take a hand in politics and get involved and so forth? So, well, because the most pressing issues I see right now can't be solved at that scale. Mm -hmm. From a systems dynamic perspective, so okay, let's do a thought experiment for a second. Let's just say that we had a magic wand and that we could wave it. And I'm not going to take any political position about the upcoming election, except to say, let's just say that we could magically wave our wand and that everybody who arrived in Washington next year was the wisest and most altruistic people available. They, and they all arrived without externalized agendas coming from social interest groups, they all arrived with the best interests of everybody in mind. Could they substantially solve the problems? And the answer is certain ones, yes, but many of the most pressing issues, I would say would be extremely difficult, if not impossible. And the reason is they're not amenable to a one size fits all solution. And that's the mindset we've gotten by pushing everything to the federal government, that you can make this legislation and regulations at a national level, and that they will um, function properly uh, down at the human scale where people are involved in their communities. And it, you know, if, as we get into permaculture, we learn that the worst thing you can try to do is take the solution that worked in one biome and basically just you know force it on another biome it won't work and it's also very similar when you've got a community what works in one community is not going to be appropriate for other communities so i think we have to devolve a lot of this decision making and a lot of the uh the the real solutions down to a human scale and that tends to be more of a community scale and I think that those local strengths are atrophied. I had knee surgery when I was a kid and it was because the outside of my leg was so strong, the inside was weaker. So it pulled my kneecap over and started chipping the bone off. And as a ski racer, that was you know painful. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening where we're like relying so much on the federal to make fix all these things because we've atrophied our local muscles. And so, and, and you, you, of course, know that gratitude lessens the further the distance is. And also, yes. like exactly like you just said, these, bio, these are different biomes, essentially. And this biome can't like appropriately cross the holistic barrier in a way, this holons barrier, and then interact in that you know, ecosystem and biome um, effectively. It's like us... Yeah, using, you know, uh, the ham-fisted chemistry of the, you know, 50s and 60s to try to work on soil when the sophistication of the biology, which are the indigenous, they are the local to the soil, um, do the work for us. 
Yeah. So it's it's interesting how um, I was going to talk about this and <laughs> but we flipped it around. Um, it it really feels like there's these moments of clarity coming out of the confusion and 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 and, and upsetness, but it does feel like we are in in deepest denial, deepest panic, and almost like we're like in a, like fighting PTSD, like a haze. Yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah. The, the, the whole thing of, of putting a pandemic on top of everything else and having people be isolated, socially mm -hmm. isolated, um, has, I think, just put a lot of emotional and psychological intensity on top of everything. Yeah. Uh, the normal support networks have been hard for people. Um, and just the, the sheer human comfort of being with other human beings has become very difficult. You know, just me going and visiting my mother who is now 87 years old and in a high risk category for the pandemic um, has become logistically challenging because, you know, I have to run around and do certain things and I'm in a much lower risk category, but the, the last thing I want to do is do something that exposes her being in a very in one of the higher risk categories. So just that has made going and visiting my own family um, more difficult. And um, so uh, you take that and you multiply it out and you start seeing that with all of the other stressors that have been going on with um, energy depletion, with uh, ecosystem depletion, with um, you know a lot of the a, a lot of the, the the structures of our society that were providing people their basic support have been weakening. Mm. Uh, you put all that together, and then you put this excess um, you know psychological stress on top of it, and um, it's not surprising that we're seeing a lot of emerging mental health issues and a lot of community issues, the stress lines are being exposed uh, by this additional set of stressors. Wow. So I didn't think about that before because I have so many people in my network that are um, like in the past year who got a divorce in, during the lockdown and mm -hmm. or have broken up with someone they've been with for years or just are dealing with stress um, in their relationship. And um, do, do you have kids? No, I don't. Okay. Yeah, I just, okay. I just think about the, the, this tension, this isolation, what it's doing to relationships. And it's like, mm -hmm. my kids don't like interacting through the Zoom. They don't, they mm -hmm. feel like, they feel like people are just talking and not like reaching each other. Yes. Yeah. There's a, there's something, I mean, I've, I've been in the telecommunications site, I've been, like I said, I've been an engineer for 30 years and I've been, and, and done a lot of del, uh, digital telecommunications, helping to work on a lot of the core technologies to make the internet go. And um, one of the, so I have a name for it, I call it intermediating technologies. Mm. And intermediating technology is any technology that stands between you and the real thing, right? Um, and if, if, you, if you don't think about that, then in the dynamics of that, it's easy to sort of let it slide by you. You know, even if you have high def video, 
the person who's pointing the camera gets to decide what part of the field of view you see. And therefore, they have editorial control over what you can see and how you can see it. So there's an intermediating technology there between you and the reality of whatever is being shown. Like when we're talking here via Zoom, you know, yes, we've got, um, we're, we've got the video turned on so we can actually see each other. We can see a little bit of the body language and so forth. But even with that, only a small amount of the visual information and a certain amount of the auditory information goes through. And so many other parts of the information that's, that happens when you're with a human being in person just can't traverse the, the technology. So you have this intermediating technology that basically cuts the bandwidth down to a tiny fraction of what it would normally be. And so, yeah, you know, Zoom has got a little bit more bandwidth than say like a, a normal telephone call, because uh, we can at least see each other to some degree, but boy, it still is nowhere near a substitute for being with human beings. And it's very difficult. <clears throat> it, it takes a certain level of like effort to remain engaged with somebody as if they're a human being when what you're actually doing, let's, let's face it, both of us are in a room alone right now, <laughs> facing a piece of electronics, right? And talking to it and trying to connect with it as if we're actually connecting with another human being, right? Um, and we're not biologically designed for that. And, not, and, and number two is the technology does not have the bandwidth to be able to carry the information to allow that to be easy. And I think that there's some wishful thinking there that it gets extended into a, a lot of the futuristic thinking. I think people are like, oh no, we're gonna map the, the electrical signals in your brain for years and look at all your emails and text and then we'll be able to download you from that information into a, and it's like, no, that's not me. <laughs> right. And that's the thing. It's, it's kind of like we're making these simulacra ghosts um, or setting ourselves up to and then convincing in, in a very like neo-religious way um, that like these people are being passed on into this digital thing. It's frightening. It's strange. And I feel yeah, like- so you're, you're about to you're, you're about to hit, hit my philosophical side here and, 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 and sort of like ask a really interesting question that goes deep. And it's basically, you know, are we an epiphenomena of our biological brain? This is, a, this is a, an epiphenomena, if you're not familiar with that word. It means a phenomena that can be, can be explained solely as the emergent property of other smaller phenomena, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, is everything about us as a human being fully explainable by our biochemistry? Hmm. Of course, this is a huge, you know, ethical and re even religious question, right? Um, but there have been very serious scientists who have basically said that they believe that consciousness is at the very least a quantum phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It has to do with the quantum state of what's going on inside of our head. And you know, we also have um, neurological things happening in the rest of our body. Most people don't realize that we also have neurons very similar to what's inside of our brain all the way down into our, you know, gut and everything else. And that there's a signaling system also going on between all our gut microbiota 
and our brain via the, the two different parts of the vagal nerve, nervous system, right? And so that there's this very complex set of, of phenomena going on that we don't even begin to understand. And some of them are quantum level, which means we can't measure them, right? right? So um, download that into, a, into a, a digital computer in binary? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think it's gonna happen. And then with quantum computing, they're like, well, the problem is, is that it creates so many possible answers that we don't know what to do with the answers. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think when people start to get really like off the deep end with this with me, I say, I tell you what, you know, we haven't even figured out yet how to keep our children fed consistently in the United States. Why don't we figure that one out first before we start going off and spending huge amounts of resources right. trying to figure out something so crazy as that? Right. You know, I, I think for me as a human being, looking at what's going on with the other people around me, I think I would rather concentrate on having them be happy and healthy and fed and have you know, a place to live um, before we go off down that rabbit hole. And I think fed um, in a holistic that, way, right? And fed in the holistic way, not yes. in like, you know, Soylent Green. <laughs> right. Because, because, I mean, we, we really have this, this desperation mounting and people kind of grabbing at straws. And I think that like, like, like the Bill Gates option with a lot of things is like a, like a, the red, you know, the red wire or something. It's like, people are going to these extraordinary extremes. They're generalizing the chemistry of our world, the geobiological chemistry of our cycles. Like, and, and we're making these huge, and, 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 I, and, it, and it is, I think, a flaw of ego or, or herification or self-herification that people want to go so big um, who get into these uh, positions of power, financial or social or political, but, but I really believe that it is improving ourselves, changing the way we see the world as individuals that allows us to begin these relationships and to begin to see the world differently. And mm -hmm. that's why your work is so critical. Um, and I don't know, you gotta, you gotta remind me, um, but if the 26 rules of resilient design is inside biocompatible design now, or if there are separate entities, but this idea that we need to have principles, that we need to lead from principles, would shift everything I feel to a completely different space where we could talk about these things, where we could make real changes um, because we would know where we actually stand. Yes. So yeah, I think, I'm trying to remember, did I, did I send you my outline of the 26 rules for resilient design? You certainly did. If I, if I had done that or not. Um, you did. Because that's, yeah, that's a, so I guess for, for those who are kind of listening and aren't familiar with what I'm doing, uh, my big picture is that I realized a while back that um, there's, boy, we have some folks doing really awesome work uh, training folks for what we call backyard scale, homestead scale, and farm scale permaculture. Um, there's some great PDCs out there as introduction, including, you know, the event permaculture student online. Um, there's other folks out there teaching in person. Uh, there's, you know, several other, there's universities. 
Jeff Lawton's down there in Australia doing his thing. There's just, you know, a lot of folks doing that. And they're, uh, most of them are concentrating on something very important, which is how do we train uh, people to do things at this a particular scale, backyard scale, garden scale, homestead scale, or small business scale, right? Um, but given the number of people we have on the planet, we also have a lot of the infrastructure of civilization being built by teams of professionals. In other words, the, the, the infrastructure that we're having to build now is large enough and sophisticated enough that you just really can't have one person go off and do it. Mm -hmm. um, it it's too much and it has too many specialties. Yeah, like fixing it's, California's watersheds. Yes, that right. would require a, a, a huge number of professionals in a lot of fields, ecology and forestry and civil engineering and hydrology and we could keep on going the list, you know, and urban planning. And I mean, the list would be really, really huge. Okay, great. Well, do we have any framework to train those folks to work together to solve those problems at that scale? Do we have any framework to uh, have people build infrastructure in cross-disciplinary teams at scale or build business processes at scale? And so as I started going forward and teaching permaculture, I realized my particular niche was there were a lot of folks that were professional designers who wanted to come and take my particular PDC because it was very much focused on, uh, you know, teaching at a level that professional designers could engage with. And um, as I started having those conversations, I would have, you know, PhDs show up for my PDC and engineers and scientists and so forth. And I started to realize that really the only way we're going to get them to be able to work together is to actually create a framework for them to do that. And so I started working on something I'm calling integrated regenerative design. Mm. And the integrated part is that it's the, you know, integrating across disciplines, the ability for large teams to function. And um, so I created a nine piece framework. Uh, of which regenerative design methodologies is one of them. And that, of course, the, 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 the one that, since it's a framework, you can plug different pieces into different parts of the framework. But right now, the only um, regenerative design training system that I'm recognizing is permaculture. Because really, it's having looked at all of the other training systems, bringing people in from architecture, landscape architecture, engineering, and the sciences, and urban planning, and so on and so forth, what can we train them with that allows them to think in the way that is required to do whole systems design and to use their specialty in support of whole systems design so that a team of them can work together to create a large-scale whole system design that is ecosystemic, that functions like an ecosystem. And so permaculture is, is that piece part. Um, and um, so that's what integrated regenerative design is. It basically says, and it would, boy, it would take a little while to go through all of them, I won't today, but it basically says that um, 
that if you're going to do a project, a process, or a product, that it has to adhere to the ethics. And um, what I've done there is I've taken the permaculture ethics and sort of recast them just a little bit so that they're specifically aimed at being able to ask metrical, metricable questions about a project, process, or product. Ooh. Right? Can you share those and with us? I, I do, I can, yes. Um, and um, then I also realized that if I use the word regenerative as an engineer, I have to define the word regenerative. And the problem is that we don't have a metricable definition of regenerative. So I had to create one of those. And that required that I, I, I played with it for a while and realized that Mr. Mollison gave us a hint, but it was only a hint. And it had to do about the energy flows in the system. Right. Right. Uh, to be sustainable, it, it had to do a certain thing. But one of the things I think we have come to in systems understanding since the word sustainable came out, besides the fact that the word sustainable has now been hijacked and greenwashed, <laughs> we, we have gotten, we've had to go to the word regenerative because if you're dealing with complex ecological systems, aiming for sustainability is a hard fail. You, sustainable holds within it this idea of we're going to hit some sort of minimum threshold and hold there. Yeah. But ecosystems don't do that. Ecosystems are always in motion. They're either growing and getting better or they're basically degenerating. Mm. And if you try to design complex nonlinear dynamical systems in such a way that they are sustainable, then you're trying to hold them at this level and say, well, we're just not going to make it any worse. <laughs> right? It's actually you, very you hard to as well. Keeping something yeah. that is so movable or variable static is almost, it's impossible. Unless you're it's impossible. Therefore, it's, it's, it's basically a poor target. You can't do it yeah. and, and be successful. So we have to aim for regenerative and we have to define regenerative as an ecosystem on a particular trajectory. Mm -hmm. Right. And basically what to say is the only way we can say we're successful is if we have created an ecosystem that is on a particular trajectory towards constantly regenerating and getting better mm -hmm. because that's the only way we'll be able to sustain it over multi-generational timeframes. To certain metrics too, that like, cause better yes. is it, it, we got to like, cause I'm the same boat. Like when I wrote regenerative yes. soil, I had to define regenerative in a way that was scientifically rigorous. And so it's, yes. it's, it's, you know, the soil organic matter, it's the water holding capacity, it's the microbiology diversity and population counts and ratios. <laughs> um, yeah. Interestingly, what you're doing is you're defining that along some of the, if you took my metrics of regenerative, you're sort of applying a few of them to soil. Because what I ended up with is I realized that the first thing I had to do was create a taxonomy of patterns. I love In other it. words, I had to figure out all the different kinds of patterns because everybody gets stuck in a few kinds of patterns. Mm. So this gets technical, but I'll just kind of go over a little bit of it real quickly. Everybody kind of got gets stuck in structural patterns and spatial patterns, but they subconsciously ignore flow patterns and relational patterns and temporal patterns. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's good strategy. Okay. Yes. So, but, so I had to create this taxonomy of basically here's all these different kinds of patterns, right? Mm -hmm. And label all the different kinds of patterns. So different kinds of distributional, spatial distributional patterns um, and different categories of them. And then it turns out that once you have that taxonomy of patterns, that since we're talking about complex ecological systems, that the way you have to metric whether you're sustainable or regenerative is by looking at the health of those patterns. Right? So you mentioned element population. That's actually one of my metrics in the definition of regenerative. There's a bunch of different line items. And it basically has to say that element population of, of desirable elements has to be maintaining or increasing in a beneficial way to the, the system. Yeah, but how do we measure that? Because from what I've oh. learned, it's uh, in healthy soils, there's actually no circulation of anything. So when you go and test it, there's nothing because it's being handed off directly like hand to hand from the microbes to, to the soil particles, to the, to, the so, to the roots. And so this economy is so efficient that it actually, though it's moving tons of nutrients around and minerals around, that soil water test that we do is going to show everything's low, which is, which is beguiling. That's right. Yeah. So it, you have to, you have to look at it carefully in soil, right? Cause I think the analogy to make here is that, you know, the soil economy of nutrients is, is tight in the same, uh, same way that if you go outside in the United States, you won't find a lot of dollar bills blowing around in the air. You know, people gather them up and stick them in their pockets or put them in the bank or that, you know, whatever, right? And it's the same. Nutrients are the currency of the, of the biological systems in the soil. Yeah. And them just blowing around free in healthy soil is actually not, it's, it's, you know, it's not happening that much. And so it becomes a very interesting question of how do you met? Well, basically, I would look at that and say, that um, how do you know when the, there, it, the, the economy is doing well? Well, it's not because that there's free dollar bills flying around out, outdoors in the breeze. It's because everybody has economically the resources they need in order to be able to meet all of their needs and thrive. Yeah, plants out. So we know, that the, we, we know that the nutrient cycle in the soil is going when we see that the plants are going all the way up and being able to do their secondary, you know, metabolites and uh, secondary metabolic products that, That's that, right. um, that, the, that the soil food web is there and fully functional, that we can see all of the parts, the trophic web actively engaged and we can metric that, right? And we can see that soil organic matter is increasing because of there's the functionality of everything, including the sacrophytic cycle and everything else is going on, we can see that. And we, so therefore we can look at that and go, ah, there are beneficial elements here. There are elements we want to see. We want to see that they are present and that they are functioning. And that, that is telling us that we're on a regenerative pathway. Right? Excellent. So metricing, how you metric gets interesting. 
But what I was off to was like this systems level definition that could be applied to anything. Right. Including soil or a business process or an economic, economic system. Um, so it was pattern based so that it could be applied to any kind of thing you were trying to design. And so that's kind of it. So my definition of regenerative actually has a number of criteria that have to do with the patterning of the system and looking at different dimensions of the patterning of the system. So there's energy flow patterning, right? There's resource flow patterning. Um, there is structural and uh, spatial distribution patterning. And all of these things have to be um, looked at in the context of the system and the way it's supposed to operate. And then you can come up with very particular metrics that are very highly pointed towards being able to tell whether that particular system is in a regenerative state or not. And um, so basically, yes, we say integrated regenerative design, I need to be able to rigorously define regenerative yeah. uh, for just about any complex system, uh, including biological, ecological systems or complex systems. Um, and uh, so that's kind of part of that, that whole thing, it, you know, it's, it's part of now what I'm incorporating into uh, the, the framework uh, of integrated regenerative design is, is that whole approach of metricing using a pa applied pattern approach. And this, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is an outgrowth of your mission to really connect the engineering world and the regenerative design, permaculture, holistic thinking world. Um, because if we could connect them, we would have a lot of smart people um, on our side. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, not just the engineering side, but I would like to, I would like to say like the, the architecture, uh, landscape architecture, the built environment folks, mm. uh, the urban planners, um, the, um, you know, the, the folks that are looking at cultural um, systems inside the invisible structures inside of communities and even at the city scale. Um, all of that, including the people who are building products, you know, mm. um, this whole sort of thinking comes down to, can we make products and technology, human technology that is ecosystemic. Um, this is part of the way I explain the criteria of integrated regenerative design, so that, that human technologies, once we started getting into the industrial revolution, um, tended to be, so the word symbiotic, right? Symbiotic literally means to, to live along with. And there's three different categories of symbiotic relationship, parasitic, commensal, and mutual symbiosis, right? Um, and parasitic symbiosis is what our technologies were originally designed to do. Our ex extractive, consumptive, wasteful technologies have all basically been parasitic symbiosis with the Earth's biosphere. They, um, the problem is that when the parasite gets too big or the parasitic load gets too large, you can destroy the host organism. And our problem here is that the parasitic load of human technology on the host organism, which is the Earth's biosphere, has been in getting larger and larger. Um, the idea of becoming sustainable to me is sort of like saying, okay, we need to start creating technologies that are less parasitic and more commensal. 
And a, and a commensal symbiote is one who can live with the host without damaging the host. But my thought on that is that human technology and human footprint on the planet is now so large that it's, it's kind of like, you know, asking a symbiotic organism that's huge to be merely commensal on a host of limited size. It just becomes practically impossible to do. So the only thing that's left for us if we want to be regenerative is to think in terms of human technologies that are mutually symbiotic with the Earth's biosphere. They reach a state of mutual symbiosis. And because of that, their functioning actually is part of the regenerative cycle of the Earth's biosphere. That has to be our criteria, and I call that ecosystemic. So when I use the word, I have four words that I use when we're talking about the sorts of criteria that are going to be applied to any project that would meet the requirements of integrated regenerative design. The first is ecosystemic, that it's mutually symbiotic with the Earth's biosphere. Second is biocompatible, and that basically means compatible with all of the life systems on Earth. And um, that's where my biocompatible design standards come in, which is a set of standards that I have created, principle-based standards that I have created that are designed to allow you to pick them up and think about any form of human technology and ask questions about these 21 principles to see whether or not what you're wanting to do is truly biocompatible. And then the next one, of course, is regenerative. And we talked about regenerative, that is it's actually regenerating the system it's part of. And then the last is profitable. And that definition of profitable is a multidimensional one, not merely monetarily profitable, but profitable across a number of metrics. Mm. Uh, it goes a little bit further than triple bottom line, by the way. It's, um, so basically that's what we're saying. We're saying that if you create something that is IRD compatible, it needs to be ecosystemic, biocompatible, regenerative, and profitable. Um, and that's sort of the way that whole thing works. Um, so, you know, know um, going back to the parasitism of, of our human behavior, one of the coolest things I learned about while studying uh, microbes and endophytes and viruses was that in healthy plants that have the right internal microbiology, that's what endophytes are, they yes. can retask viruses to be beneficial. So th there's, and, and obviously our bodies are, have a virome. We have viruses in our body. Yes. Um, we use viruses. Um, and so th this idea that we have this virulence right now, um, but if we are inoculated, you know, like uh, it's an internal change. It's a um, like a like a probiotic or or even an idea uh, or a set of ideas. But it's this retasking of ourselves to be these regenerative forces that that is possible. It's demonstrated, you know, and we've seen stories of redemption um, in in human history and in, in our own lives. But it's also microbial. It's also something that um, we see we see throughout nature. 
So I really do believe that um, we can we can make that flip. And your your metric of profitable, I think, is so critically important because when we were talking earlier about um, just like you know finding the people, connecting to the smart people, um, there's a lot of smart people, and they're mostly making yeah. money. Um, I mean, Ray Dalio, you know, the billionaire, the guy who predicted the 2008 crash, that guy, he in the 70s was, was, was creating diagrams that were mapping rainfall so that he could figure out the exact yields given a week per week um, rainfall analysis, what the final product will be on the shelves so that he could play the stock market better. But it's like, that's incredibly smart, applicable to like permaculture. This guy, you know, if he, if he had learned regenerative concepts as a kid, would have applied those readily without even hesitating. He's not a bad guy. You know what I mean? He's, he's just a really smart guy who's going and living his life, you know, using the systems that are laid out before him um, and trying to make sense of the world. And if we can get not just the people who are active now, not just the people in positions of power now, but the locals, the young kids, the, uh, the rising generation, um, to start getting these tools, the ideas and concepts into their fluency, uh, that flow state, right? Um, and, and, and as soon as you have, there's that internal energy flow where you're using all these systems as lenses to look through, um, I really do believe we're going to see some real change, but it is, it is really like we're here and they're there and we have to create that bridge. So I really appreciate your work. Um, is, is there a release date um, for your next book? So I've got several books in process. Um, and um, so I think maybe the thing that would be, I'll describe how integrated regenerative design, how I'm trying to get it going forward. And okay. we are looking at a book on this, but um, the interesting thing, this gets kind of meta, but I think it's very important. Um, the interesting thing is integrated regenerative design is a framework for creating projects. And a project would be like a one-off big thing, like a building or a municipal water system or transportation system, right? A product, that would be something that you were going to, you know, uh, build a lot of and, and so forth, like a t-shirt or socks or a cell phone or a process. And it turns out that integrated regenerative design itself is a process. Therefore, integrated regenerative design as a process can be designed using the principles of integrated regenerative design. Mm -hmm. So basically it's a bootstrapping problem. And so integrated regenerative design says that the, the framework I've come up with basically says anytime you think of a project process or product that you want to create, you pull together what we call the convener circle. This would normally be three to nine people. And their whole job is to do the initial analysis on the idea. And they have to ask what are called the convener's questions. The convener's questions are a series of seven questions and they have to be able to answer yes to all seven of them before it can go forward in the IRD framework. Mm. And the first one is, is it really needed? 
Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, and then from there is, is it the best way to meet this particular need? And then can it be done? And there's other, these other questions. Can it be done ethically? Can it be done regeneratively? Um, can, will it create the quality of life we want to see? Will it be profitable? Right? Will it be profitable? That's right. All these questions are in there. And if the answer to all of that is yes, then the project can go forward in the IRD framework. If not, they have to modify the idea until it can or drop the idea. They can't this is fabulous. The mission circle. You can't charter the mission circle to go forward with the, until you've got a yes on all of those and the idea. Then you hand it over to the mission circle to do it, right? Um, and then there, it, then you pull together the team and there is an organizational structure that you use uh, in order to make certain all this is happening properly. And then you go through the design process and the, and the whole process starts, that's the beginning, that's called inception, right? It goes from inception to decommissioning the whole life cycle of the thing. It, it's, it, it, so it's all in the integrated regenerative design framework. And all the questions have to do with from inception to decommissioning, you know, the whole life cycle analysis, what is this doing? Um, so what I'm trying to do is get the foundations of integrated regenerative design defined well enough that and I'm just about there to call the conveners circle and basically get this group of people together, hopefully the right people from different industries and so forth, to ask these questions, look at what, I'm, what we're wanting to do, mm-hmm. and make certain that we can answer all of these questions with a yes, right? If integrated regenerative design is going to require that anything that you create using integrated regenerative design be able to answer yes to these questions, then it itself better be able to answer yes to all those questions, right? And so then they would officially convene the mission circle um, and we would then officially finish the peer review process. There's been a lot of unofficial peer review so far, right? But we would go out through the process of official peer review and then release, officially release this as a, the same way you would release a, you know, a large scale um, pro- uh, process. Um, and then it, the, the life cycle of integrated regenerative design would follow the life cycle laid out by its own framework. Wow, that's epic. That is, and you know, as a high school teacher, I can't help but think like that's the best way to like really help kids be reflective and kind of like help them navigate decision, good decision making um, for their senior project or or just yes. to introduce them to something like that is so powerful. I, I use that, as you know, um, that kind of, uh, or, or my own version of that, um, to check over everything I do. Because yes. I, I mean, maybe psychologically, because I was the third born boy, um, but I don't feel like I'm ever quite done unless it's been run through as many of the highest level um, minds that I that I can get access to, and um, yeah. it's a humbling process. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. We have we all have our own blind spots, and um, that's just being human, you know. So, 
the more different vantage points we can get on anything that we're doing, the more likely it is to have those blind spots addressed. Yeah, so here's a question for you. So this is something that like, like I, I lost sleep over this and I brought it up with Olivier Cousson and he like went off. And it's this, this reality that not just geology, biology and chemistry um, and organic you know, chemistry, they all have different definitions for same, the same words sometimes. Yes. And it's like chemistry won't revise itself. It's like everybody else is changing the words and revising it to like what's today. It's like we have, yes. instead of glomus intra radices, we have uh, rhizophagus because we now know the rhizophagy cycle. But, yes. but, but chemistry is still like, oh no, oxygen. Or like, uh, oh my gosh, is it selenium? Uh, selenate is completely like, uh, um, the, the, uh, there's a mineral with this, almost the same exact name and has no selenium in it. And it's like, we don't revise in chemistry and it's, all right, so I'll just say it. So like oxidizing is the loss of an electron or the gain of oxygen or the gain of OH negative hydroxide. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> those are three different things. It's like, yeah, but we just say oxidizing and then we move on and we don't identify which one they're referring to in so much of the literature. And it's completely infuriating because if you want to actually like know what's going on, actually, you have to find a, uh, someone who's willing to be meticulous enough. Um, yes. Are you but seeing again, that? Chemists, yeah, chemists and chemical engineers, uh, you know, they, they are, that really came up in the inorganic world and there was a very inorganic um, mindset around that. And um, what we start seeing is when you get over into the side of life processes, the chemistry, biochemistry gets really complicated. Um, and so the, the, the pure chemists, not the applied chemists, but the theoretical chemists and then the chemical engineers, they have a lot of thinking around industrial processes. With purified substances at like, you know what I mean? Like, like that's the thing is it's like, it's not actually possible outside of their laboratory. Yes, that's right. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's like, I've, I've made this comment before. It's the same thing in mathematics where, you know, in engineering school, the, there were people, literally mathematicians, who really got upset at what engineers did with math because we were dirtying up their beautiful pure mathematics, right? And um, it's just this mind. So um, this comes from the Western deconstructionist view of how to gain information. Western science, its first approach was to say, wow, that's complicated. Can we break that down into smaller parts and study those? Well, even that smaller part is still kind of complicated. So let's break that down. And, and the idea was if you kept on breaking it down to the point where you got to small things you could study and you could isolate those and understand them in isolation, then when you did that to all the pieces parts that you would magically understand the thing that was composed of all of them. And of course, by the time you got to the 1960s and 70s, they started realizing that that is just categorically false. 
that complex systems have all kinds of what's called, you know, what we talk about in complexity theory as emergent behaviors. There's all kinds of complex interactions that occur that are not obvious from studying the, 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 the nature of all the components. When you put them all together and let them all dance together, they become incredibly complicated and all these things happen. And so the idea that we can understand the natural world by breaking it down into chemistry and physics and biology and all of this, and that all these different things could be sort of orthogonal and that you could study them separately and then that would just explain everything has, I think, pretty much been, you know, just, it's just sort of like dead on arrival now. Um, because complexity theory has shown us definitively that that's not how the world works. You know, that the world is a, has all these very complex whole system dynamics that are not amenable to study merely by deconstructionist analysis. And so now there's a, there is this struggle in science to figure out how to approach the complexities of whole systems and, and the complexity science. So we're still stuck in that. And mm. we're still stuck in the fact that chemistry, for example, um, is, is, is not fully embraced. Uh, the fact that there's all these complexities in biochemistry and that it, it needs to start thinking in the way that chem real chemicals express themselves in the real world. Yeah, and I think everyone who's you know, kind of had a liberal arts education can also relate to this. I remember my junior year um, in the depths of depression and alcoholism, <laughs> going to my friend and being like, everything we've learned is deconstructionism. And everything we've learned as we deconstruction how it loses meaning. And it was like this, like, just this like moment of existential, like, reflection it was awful and it's like that's the problem though with our entire system is we make things meaningless and we like mm -hmm. it's like when someone is like describing you as you do something that you really love and they're like and there you go you're you're eating it and you love it don't you and you're like why are you you took away the magic you know what i mean and it's like we're taking away the magic of the world around us um but by parsing it down into these um, unrelatables, you know? And I think that there's this, this, this new and emerging, um, and they've, they, I would say that they've always been there too, um, because James White has been working on this stuff for 40 years, but that is shifting towards visual and showing us how it actually works as a picture so we, and, and, and what's funny is I think that they didn't talk about this as much because they didn't know why it was all happening. But now they're talking about it. They're like, no, we can see it. It's passing right through it. See it? We don't know how that happens yet. You know, and, 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 and it's like we're, we're shifting more towards like if it's visual, we can track it. We know it's happening. Even if we don't understand it, we got to honor the reality rather than honoring the theories that work or seem to work as the science. Um, and it's amazing, you know, what we're arriving at. Yeah, I think one of the things to just acknowledge is that, you know, this tool of scientific deconstructionism is a powerful one. It is. You can find out a bunch of stuff, right? Um, 
the problem comes when you use it as your exclusive means of inquiry. Yeah. That, you, you know, we're going to have to wind up with basically whole systems approach and deconstructionist inquiry incorporated, both and, not either or. Uh, acknowledging the power, but also the limits of what came out of the Western Enlightenment and scientific inquiry coming out of that, and realize that that gives you a very one-sided, lopsided view if you don't also have a holistic understanding of whole systems. And I would say that the fact that we've trained generations of engineers and scientists and, and professional designers in a deconstructionist view and a set of areas of study and profession that sort of reflect that. You have an electrical engineer and a civil engineer and a mechanical engineer yeah. and a, a, you know, and an architect and a landscape architect and all these projects that I would be working on. And the, one of the key ways I communicate the a need for integrated regenerative design is to say what that results in is designs that are piecewise smart, but whole system stupid. Hmm. Because you, you know, oh, yep, I'm a civil engineer and I, I solved this problem, this little narrow defined problem. I solved it in a way that was convenient for me. Right? Right. But when you back that civil engineer up and make them understand the holistic context in which they are functioning, the whole life context, the whole biological context, and so forth, then all of a sudden they go, oh, wow maybe those solutions aren't the best solutions after all. Maybe taking and dehydrating landscapes by creating concrete culverts and rushing water off as fast as we can is not the best way of doing this, right? It solved a very narrowly defined problem in a very deterministic way. But it turns out that when you look at it from a whole systems perspective, it's an awful solution. And so now we have like huge, huge amounts of you know, hydrological work that civil engineers have done for decades that we're looking at going, wow, that's a mess. It's creating all of these problems. It's creating, you know, additional soil erosion. It's creating, you know, dehydrated landscapes and it's contributing to desertification and so on and so forth. So it turned out that it was a piecewise smart solution, but a whole system stupid solution. And it also and seems so like... Have to go to both yeah, and it also seems like um, it's pragmatic, right? When on the whole holistic side, so it's it's communicatable, it's not convoluted, um, like the water systems in California, you know, um, and it has this knowable capacity. When you said stupid, I kind of had like that a moment of reflection where it's like, well, actually, I want the it to be knowable and that, you know what I mean, not overly sophisticated. Um, but but that that's the thing is it's like this. And I think it was Leonardo da Vinci that said it, uh, simplicity is the greatest uh, innovation. And if we can create these holistic understandings and, and um, fluencies, then innovation will flow from it, um, I, I, I truly believe. Yeah, I, I think the thing to remember is that when you are looking at proper whole systems design, it, 
actually simplifies the overall system complexity. And that's almost counterintuitive, but you kind of have to understand that we have these incredibly complex systems right now that have been created because we have piecewise smart solutions, but then all of a sudden that piecewise smart solution starts creating problems in other domains. And so then we start bolting all kinds of remedial methods onto the side of it in order to try to fix it, right? So now you have all these complicated piecewise solutions, none of which work with each other, and all kinds of remedial things are piled on top in an attempt to get us to the point of a whole system that functions. Whereas if you start with a holistic design approach, then you can stack functions interdisciplinarily and you can solve multiple problems with single systems. Thus, making the entire system dynamic much more elegant, much more understandable, much more functional, and much simpler. So how do we remove the behemoths? Because so much of this, this momentum has created this weight that's holding progress back in a very real way. I'm, when you said that description, I couldn't help but laugh because in my mind, I saw the New York City sewer and water systems, which you know, they go in and they know where it comes in and they know where it comes out. But between those two things, they have no idea. Um, just below Chinatown, which is, you know, a lower spot in Manhattan, it's 10 mm -hmm. stories down to the actual soil. Yeah. So there, there, there's this mind-boggling complexity, um, almost mm -hmm. impossible complexity. I mean, unless they're doing like, a radioactive isotope and then scanning the whole city at, at a 3D level to be able to follow it as it goes around. And um, how, would you, how would you address that? I'm not an engineer um, and uh, it, it, seems, it seems like we're gonna have to scrape the whole thing and start over, um, but, but what would you say? So, I mean, I, I think the thing is we have invested a huge amount of energy and resources into existing infrastructure. Um, and a lot of that has been a malinvestment. It has been, uh, it, it's turning out to, to be, what we did is we invested a huge, huge amount of the Earth's resources, a huge amount of stored fossil energy into a system of degenerative assets, right? And those degenerative assets will degenerate. They will have to be replaced. They do not have a infinite lifetime. So, I mean, what's happening in New York City right now is they're basically trying to patch the water system, as you're talking about the water system, as it breaks, right? If something breaks, they have to go in and sort of like do archaeology to figure out <laughs> what was going on. And then like try to figure out how to, how to patch it, right? But at some point in time, that whole system basically will be to the point where it's just falling apart faster than you can patch it, right? And so at some point in time, there is going to have to be some substantial rethinking of those systems. And what's frightening uh, is that their jobs for those particular jobs are almost all um, lottery based. So the workers you have in there aren't the most skilled. They're the ones whose number came up. Yeah, so, I mean, you have to come back and, and literally at some point, hopefully you'd have an integrated regenerative design team who would sit down 
and be looking at this exact problem, right? How do we solve the problem of the water system in New York? Well, of course, the next question would be, um, you know, water is just one part of a larger system. Is the project of New York City, as we currently <laughs> yeah, have it, the whole a project that we want to keep going for the next 500 years, presuming we're here for 500 years, right? Okay. Because that's the time frame we're talking about. Integrated regenerative design works on a 500-year time frame. Right. I love it. Okay. I love it. Yeah. I mean, this was the same thing. It's like I have people down in New Orleans ask me questions about what after Katrina, what do we do with that? And I was like, well, we need to, if, if New Orleans, I said, do you, do you hope New Orleans is here 500 years from now? And that, that just so sort of like, that was the first question. And they were all like, uh, uh, yeah. I was like, yeah. okay, <laughs> let's have a 500 year, let's have a 500 year plan, right? Okay. So the way we got here was, you know, we drained a lot of the estuaries and the, the, the and the marshes that were creating a storm surge barrier. And we did these things, we built below sea level and so on and so forth. The building stock that you're talking about, most of it has a 30 year time horizon. It has to be rebuilt. You know, um, the commercial buildings oftentimes are rebuilt in 30 to 50 years and housing, modern housing, heck, a lot of it in 30 to 40 years is pretty much falling apart. You know, crazy. The, like it's crazy. The mansions that we're throwing up all over the place. So it's like, Okay, so when we, we take these things down, what if we, you know, look at restoring these estuaries, restoring the, you know, these things and building in a different location, building up, you know, out of the floodplains, built and return, taking the levees completely out over time and basically allowing the floodplains to serve their ecological function and, you know, take some of these roads out and over the next 120 years, we transform this, the, the whole layout of you know the uh, of um of new orleans mm. to accommodate an ecologically regenerative ecosystemic system of the humans there cohabitating with the environment as the climate continues to shift that's the only thinking that's going to allow the project of human infrastructure we call new orleans to persist and i would say the same Thing starts to occur when you look at New York and then so okay let's go back to biocompatible design for a, a second right biocompatible design principles of which there's 21 break down into three broad categories of principles there are the ecological principles that basically talks about whether when we are building technologies they allow for the earth's ecosystem to function how are they interrelating with the Earth's ecos, you know, ecosphere. Number two is, the, the second major category is technological. That is, what are the intrinsic characteristics of the technology itself? What is, and that has to do with, is it, is it got a closed cycle design? Is it built at human scale, right? Um, is it using biocompatible materials? Um, you know, there's a bunch, there's seven principles on that. But then the third set of principles are what are called the human principles. And this has to do about whether the technology is actually creating the kind of environment that we want to live in, that's healthy for us as human beings to live in, right? Um, and so there's seven principles there about thinking about whether the technologies that we create, for example, one of them 
is whether it creates a baseline stimulus environment that is compatible with the with humans. Mm -hmm. In other words, we can create a baseline system that is um, creates chronic low level stress. Chronic low level stress is a form of what I've defined as caco stress, which is bad stress, right? It's stress that creates degenerative conditions in the organism. Yep. <laughs> and so, right? I'm living it right that's now with all these fire, like constant warnings and. Right, that's a, that's a caco stress. It's a constant yeah. low level stress, right? As opposed to a eustress. You comes from the EU, beginning of you comes from the Greek prefix meaning good and caco means bad. It's a Greek prefix for bad. So good stress versus bad stress. And so if somebody's going, well, what in the world's good stress? Well, you know, if you ever gone and worked out in the gym, well, that hopefully if you do it right, is a form of eustress. You are putting a, a very precise level of stress on your body for a particular period of time and then letting your body recover. And uh, this thing called a hormesis response occurs. The organism responds by adapting and getting stronger, right? So the whole thing is if we are designing to be biocompatible, the human part of it says that we have to actually provide the appropriate level of appropriate external stimuli, sensory stimuli, neuromuscular stimuli, you know, everything else, because if we create, the, if we, we send caco stress in there, then it's a problem chronic low level stress being one example of that. But what if we provide absolutely no use stress? Well, you're gonna have terrible outcomes as well. In other words, this is something I've been talking to architects about recently. Architects have been told in architecture school that their job is to create buildings that are quote, comfortable. And the idea of comfortable is that I go into them, I set the thermostat, and it stays 72 degrees Fahrenheit, 50% relative humidity, all the way around the, the, the calendar. And that there's no sensible air movement and that there's nothing else challenging and that you have all kinds of comfy places to sit. And so you spend the majority of your time just sitting there in this environment that provides zero hormesis um, capacity so that you basically atrophy all your facilities as a human being. Is that a good design? Is that really compatible with our biological needs as human beings? And my answer is no. So this also gets into biocompatible design. The human aspects of it have to do with creating environments that meet our biological needs and our social needs. Uh, our needs for human interaction and um, our needs for, for example, not being surveilled. <laughs> another key part of that, right? Yeah. Um, it's another thing that causes actual, we're starting to, to realize that being in a surveilled environment creates chronic low level stress. Public school. <laughs> yeah. <Sorry. laughs> I love it. No, I mean, there's a great, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a, there's a DVD set of Bill Mollison and Jeff Lawton co-teaching 
a PDC, mm -hmm. and they're teaching it in a, a classroom from some university, I think, down there in Australia. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember the exact quote, but it was fairly close, close to this, right? Mollison looked around the room. He said something kind of like this. He said it was sort of like this building fairly shouts that it does not trust its inhabitants. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And it's it's like that's that's it. You know, there's this thing that we can build into the place where you have this chronic low-level feeling that you're not welcome or trusted in the space that you're in, mm. you know. So as far as I know, biocompatible design is the first effort to sit down and really think about comprehensively what are the, 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 the principles of building technology that are truly biocompatible with all life, including the human life and the human needs that need to inhabit them. I have a book that you probably, you maybe have already read. It's a famous mm -hmm. book. Um, it's called In Praise of Shadow, or In Praise of Shadows, plural, perhaps. Um, it's on mm -hmm. Audible now. Um, it's a short book, but it's about the difference between the way that things are designed in Japan and, um, and, and I think maybe some, some in, in the rest of Asia, but I think it's primarily Japan. And it talks about the aesthetic and the sensations and feelings and thoughts you have when you have like an outdoor toilet. And so they're like this, they, they don't have any light in there. They make, make it so that it's away from everything else. So you hear like birds and nature. So the first thing of your day is this almost meditative act. It's, it's, it's fascinating and it, it really shows that culturally at different times and parts of our history and different bioregions all over the earth, We've really, we've really grasped this at different times, mm -hmm. um, what it is to create spaces that not just um, delight the eye, but have meaning and meaning creation yeah. designed in. Mm -hmm. Yes. That reminds me of, of you know, right now, uh, I know I've mentioned just in passing, I can't give too many details of the exact moment of this, of this Native American um, uh, village that we're working on and one of the things I'm, I'm designing at the moment is the bathhouse mm. um, and um, so you know that has cultural implications it's like you have to understand their approach to all of that and so uh, thinking about the shower for example um, and how they some of their their cultural traditions which I want to kind of get into but I got to thinking about it, I realized well the first thing is that we tend to put our showers in these hermetically sealed chambers that are climate controlled. And when you are in a shower, you're kind of in this like little, most pod. cases like pod, right? And so the, the shower system in, in the bathhouse literally has walls that go up that are open to the top with the ceiling flying up over top so that you have fresh air going over the top. And the wall on one side is radiant heat. So that you're getting in the wintertime, when you go in, you have that cool air still circulating out into that space, but you're radiantly heated from the wall. 
and then you have hot water, but then there is a window on the other side that you can pull down to the level you're comfortable so you can see out into the forest and the, the showers are arranged so they all have a forest view. So that when you come in to shower in the wintertime as you undress, you still feel the coolness of the air to connect you to the natural cycle, even though the radiant heat helps keep you feeling comfortable. And then you can get into the shower and have the, the water, you know, and still look out over the landscape and be connected to the landscape so that your experience of showering changes over the course of the year as the, the, the seasons change. Mm. Um, and it, that is a, something critically important to help keep you connected to the changing seasons. So it's not like every morning you go in, you have the exact same experience in your shower pod. Right, uh, and and you 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 don't know whether it's summer or winter outside in the temperate zones. Um, so I think there's some thinking about that sort of thing that thinks about how we as human beings interact with our environment and how we are connected or disconnected from our natural ecosystems. Yeah, and. Touching further upon that, the, the, the flow of air, but the book goes into the flow of light. So mm -hmm. it, 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 it's about passive lighting to a degree, but it's more about this interplay of light and dark at times too. And the difference in the season and having the light be, create different, different um, patterns um, that, that, that just feed us and create this, this sumptuous space that, um, I think that most of us aren't even, even acquainted with, cause we're, you know, as you said, in these spaces blasted with controlled air and then the lights are like, <laughs> I mean, there are these sterile, unforgiving, just so white blue, and yes. it, it destroys, um, uh, well, it does a lot of negative things, but, um, but it, it takes away the mystery. I've got this, this, this low lamp in here, and I usually never keep you know, all these lights on. I've got a low lamp in the room because I don't want that much light. I, I, and, and when I want light, I open, open the windows. Um, yes. That's where the light's from. And so... I really feel like that there's so much edge, so much there to be explored that is deeply enriching and meaningful that your work effortlessly just highlights in a, and also by asking questions, you leave it really up to them. So creative. Mm -hmm. Whew, I love it. It's so, powerful. Interestingly, one, one of the 20, one of the 21 principles, uh, is actually around the light and EMF environment. That's one of the mm -hmm. 21 principles. Uh, and around uh, circadian lighting and all of that. It's one of the, of the, of the of how all that works, plus the EMF environment, you know, all of the RF and EMI, RFI, and so forth in the space. Um, that's all one principle about creating that. So uh, on, on the same project I was talking about, the, the building that has the kitchen and the classroom and the dining room in it, um, um, I specified light tubes for lighting for everything, uh, plus windows. So there's windows and, and light tubes. And uh, the building is just now being finished up. But being inside the building is fascinating because um, 
the solar power system is not fully installed yet, so there's no um, electricity in the building at the moment. So the building is all passively lit. Mm. And you walk in and you're sitting there talking and the clouds go in front of the sun and literally all the lights overhead dim because all the lights coming out of the ceiling are all, and, and everything coming from the window, all dim at the same time. And so it just pulls your awareness out into the environment. It's it. like, oh, the clouds are going over the sun and inside the building, the sun, the sunlight fluctuates up and down so that you have this fluctuating level. And of course you have light coming through the windows. So as the sun moves through the day, the pattern of the sunlight coming through the windows is actually changing as well. And this creates a dynamic environment instead of the static environment. And static environments have a tendency to um, be not healthy or optimally healthy for people. Fatiguing. Um, so creating these, creating these dynamic environments, very important. These are all things that now um, architects are having to start begin, just the front edge are having to uh, wrestle with under the, under the titles of things like biophilic design. Um, there's now uh, a lot of discussion under biophilic design of these exact kind of things. Um, these, these connections and having uh, connections to natural sounds and to natural lighting and uh, a, a, a reference views of nature and uh, natural patterning inside the building as well. Um, mm -hmm. These are all things that are going on in conversation. And of course, I'm pushing it all the way into, and you need hermesis effects. You need sensible air movement at different points inside of buildings. Uh, this is why you have to have operable windows and operable, you know, that, that allow for cross ventilation. Um, and we keep we can keep on moving, right? We need uh, temperature variations inside the buildings because that is another thing that you know um, that actually is important for human beings to experience. So there's all these things under that whole rubric. The first couple of human uh, principles under the, the biocompatible design, the first three of those principles has everything to do with all that stuff about the proper, you know, proper environment uh, biomechanically uh, for us to be in uh, in order to thrive. So do you use lighting at night that's different from the lighting you use at day or do you just shut down? Oh, yeah. Um, are you using the red lights at night? So the way I look at it is this. Um, basically, during the day, as much as possible, I would like to use ambient daylight. Right. With task-specific auxiliary lighting where required. Right. But spotlight, basically. Yes, exactly. So if it's a little bit of an overcast day and the sunlight's a little bit low, then that should be the ambient light in the room to me. If you need additional light to work on a particular task, then provide that during the day. Now, when it starts to come down towards sunset, um, because of the way our, our eyes deal with light coming in, to me, overhead lights should go away. We should only use those in those moments when we absolutely need them for something. Like we need to turn the light on in the room broadly to do something, right? Otherwise, the lights in the room should be low. They should be shifted towards the red part of the spectrum, less blue. 
and they should be of, the, of, of a lower illumination. By doing that, we allow our circadian rhythm to actually function properly. Uh, we allow for our body to downshift um, into its sleeping mode and to go to sleep really, really well. Um, you know, I think I, in, in the Advanced Permaculture Student Online uh, videos, I think I mentioned something about all this, about you know, them doing all these crazy um, uh, scientific experiments, supposedly, about you know, what's the natural sleeping time for teenagers. And uh, they put them in artificially lit, you know, artificially lit environments. And it turns out if you give them artificial lights and video games, they'll stay up till one in the morning. Who knew? Right? And um, so I said, oh, well, hey, teenagers' natural thing is to stay up till one in the morning and then, like, you know, sleep until nine. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me, right? I've, I've taken teenagers out camping where you're away from the artificial lights and consistently after the third night, you know, two and a half hours after the sun goes down, they're in bed. They're in, the, they're in, the, they're in their sleeping bags in the tents, right? They're, they're, they're out. Right. And then the sun is coming up in the morning, and by the third day, the sun is coming up, and they're all climbing out. Yeah. Right? Ta-da! They've recovered their circadian rhythm, because the only light they have after the sun goes down is the campfire. Right. Their body downshifts, and their body says, oh, okay, it's time for sleep now. And they go to sleep, and they sleep, and they get up, and they... And it, this is it, you know? Um, and with that, you would tend to sleep a little bit more in the winter than you do in the summer. Um, but that it turns out that our bodies are designed for that. I lived in Vermont growing up and in New Hampshire, so I remember those long hibernating sleeps very well. Um, that's yes. one of the one of the uh, uh, draws I have uh, to perhaps return back to that uh, um, that more temperate, cold climate. Is is that the winter rests you really deeply recoup, um, especially yeah, yeah. if you're into winter sports. Uh, I would say oh, that yeah. there's something about uh, exerting yourself in a high calorie taxing environment. I, I mean, to graduate from high school, I had to spend uh, three days alone in the White Mountains, 10 days uh, out backpacking uh, in, uh, in the White Mountains. So uh, I, I, I'm <laughs> maybe a little bit particularly uh, in love with that. But um, something that just occurred to me about the, um, about the lighting has anyone yet figured out how to create a lighting system? Not, and not like a dual lighting system, but a true single light system, and you probably could do this with LEDs, um, that transitions um, that you could set so that at 6.30, it starts transitioning from blue to red, and then by the time you know it's seven, um, your house lighting just automatically has shifted. Um, yeah, my, so if you flip my, that light switch on, it's totally different. Yeah. And that way that, because I mean, it, it would be great to like, like for me, it's like a medicine thing, right? It's like people are literally light sick. And so it's like, I want to yes. figure out how to get them sensible, like, and realizing the difference. And then they'll be like, you know what? If it feels this good, forget the lights. I'm going to do some candlelight dinners this week and I'm going to see, you know, and it's like getting them to taste the medicine, getting the inoculation going, I think is, uh, is critical. But what, have you seen anything like that? So there's some discussion on that. My approach so far has been to use LED lights that are more in the red end. 
and then to use daylight during the day so that they get the blue daylight and whatever the color temperature of the light is coming from the outside. And then hopefully the LEDs are only being used at night so that we can just take and, and use the more, you know, warm um, LEDs that, that have less of the blue and uh, put them in. So like the light tubes I'm, I'm using in that uh, building with the classroom, uh, the light tubes have the, the light gathering, it brings it down and distributes it, but inside the same pipe, there is a uh, electrical LED a, a socket for an LED bulb. And so you can go over and flip a light switch at night and that same, um, that same fixture that was sending out daylight during the day will actually send out LED light at night. And um, so you just put the right type of LED bulb in there. And so as the light goes down, if you don't need the overhead light, you just leave it off. Right. You just turn on smaller task lights, um, you know, that, that are enough. And there's enough spill from that that you can, na you can navigate around. And you guys, if you need, you you need guys, the overhead, you turn it on temporarily. Yeah. You, you guys didn't experience the, the darkness, right, from the fires? We were, it was no. like, it felt, I mean, it, it f feels apocalyptic when you're in these situations, yeah. but it's dark outside. The light that's cast through the windows is orange. Feels like you're on Mars. It's, and so you will, you know, if you're in certain areas and certain times and situations need some of that lighting um, as an yes. emergency backup, but. Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting where it's like, we might not really need to have a transition. Um, mm -hmm. But in that, the, we could look at it, if, if everybody was faced with having to endure the orange light during the day, millions and millions of people, they might all get together and go, you know, we really need to fix all the impediments to having this problem addressed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you would it's, make it impossible to just draw the windows and ignore it. There'd be millions of people who have to say, okay, this is not acceptable. Yeah, and I feel like this is kind of like we, 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 are, we are, if we're not there now, we are arriving at this very junction where we're like, no, we're actually going to not allow that now. We're going to stand up against this. We're going to unite on a, a local level. We're going to pull those politicians out like, and we're going to have people who are in there that are very sensitive to, you know, to, to what's needed um, and, and, and informed and wise. And be, be, because it's like, like Olivia Hussan said this week, it's like we are in a race against time. And California, I think, is, the, is our Australia, essentially, right? Because, I mean... For us to say that uh, you know California is this leading example is not exactly true. I mean, Australia gave us a warning last year with the incredibly devastating fires that are kind of in incomprehensible uh, from our vantage point in some ways. Even though I'm living in the fire, um, um, there there there's a definite um, scale difference. So I, I really I really feel like we've got the warning. We're getting. We're getting these messages, but um, I think we have PTSD, and I think that we need to we need to figure out how to um, like relieve pressure or something, uh, or reestablish equilibrium, or wake up from the 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 the, the days that we're in. But something needs to happen. Um, 
-hmm. and uh, hopefully we we all can figure that out. Yeah, it's going to take all of us. Yeah. You know, I would like to invite you to be a speaker at our future which is the Regenerative Entrepreneurship Conference that is happening in January 2021. And it's free to the public, it's open for everyone. Um, I'm gonna have goodie bag options for people that wanna download it and keep it forever and, and get you know, something fun in the mail. And, uh, and, and it's sponsored and it's really exciting. Uh, we've got uh, 15 speakers so far. I've asked mm -hmm. uh, some other incredible people uh, that you definitely know and recognize from our PV2 days. Uh, Neil Speckman is participating. Uh, Frank Goldbeck is participating. Um, William Padilla Brown, um, Rich On, and, and many, many other entrepreneurs. But I would, I would love it if you could kind of do a talk about these questions. So, and challenge the viewers to form that quorum of advisors, mentors, and peers that will give them that, that, that obstacle. It's an obstacle, let's be honest. It's like you, gotta, you create this thing that's a challenge and you've gotta go over it, but when you do, it makes you better. You know, you're yes. building those muscles that, um, and you're exposing yourself to criticism and growth and more humility. <laughs> But but I really would would just be absolutely ecstatic if you could um, be one of the speakers for this for this conference in January. That sounds like fun. Yeah, okay. I, I think that whole thing of just starting off. Anytime you're looking at doing something as an entrepreneur or you know any kind of project that you're looking at, by starting with the very first question you have to answer is, you know, does this really serve a need beyond? me making money, right? Is what real needed in the community is this addressing? Um, because we do, we have finite resources on this planet and we have finite amount of ability to do things. And so, you know, I think that that is just such a core thing to be asking ourselves because we're at the point now where a lot of basic human needs are not being met and we have, a finite amount of resource to meet them at the moment. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, is what I'm gonna do needed? Is it contributing to the quality of life for the community that we wanna see? Um, and boy, I mean, I think you could, hopefully what I would say is, if you can answer these questions, yes, then hopefully you can feel like you're, you, if you're an entrepreneur and your projects all answer these questions, yes, that you are making a right livelihood. You know, and I think that's an important thing. I am excited. I think, I think that um, your talk's gonna help so many people and it's open to the public, it's free. Uh, Funde Perfecta is a sponsor, Baker Creek is a sponsor, um, Herbworks is a sponsor. I'm expecting a lot more sponsors, um, probably 20 to 30 speakers. It's slated at four days right now, it might, balloon into five, um, but it's, it's going to be exciting. And I'm, it's going to be even more exciting that you're going to be there. <laughs> uh, cool. Yeah, I'd love to do that and, and, and talk about the ethics uh, a little bit and how the ethics play into that and these, and these chartering questions, where I call the convener's questions, um, that, um, you know, and how they play into the ethics. And, um, 
and, uh, and all that. that. That's something I've given some thought to. And, oh yeah, and, and I can tell. That's why I want that that to to hit these uh, new entrepreneurs and 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 really help them uh, shape the world that they want to see. Because I feel like there's really no energy and space for movement in the old systems. And that means we need to build new systems. That need, means we need to be entrepreneurs. So I'm very grateful for your help in this. Oh yeah. Well, it's, uh, like I said, it'll take all of us. And um, we, have, we have a lot of work to do, but it's good work. Absolutely. So where can we learn more? from you um it is about to be hitting um the web i'm been what i'm doing right now is i am putting together the website but the same thing as i'm putting it together to explain the integrated regenerative design mm -hmm. i'm uh, have a group of uh, folks reading through it and um trying to make certain that we can explain this complicated framework in a really clear way so are almost there. I would say probably a couple, like by the end of the year, we'll probably be there. Um, but it'll be the Institute of Integrated Regenerative Design. And um, so coming up, you'll start seeing more communication from us on that. Um, and that is, that's the new sort of like overarching uh, thing we're doing. The Institute of Integrated Regenerative Design, its whole purpose is to teach the integrated regenerative design framework, the biocompatible design standards, and start training our design professionals uh, in the whole system, including the permaculture design. So um, hopefully it'll become an add-on, um, something that if you're getting a professional design degree, that you would add on this credential. Uh, and it would basically make you ready to go to jump into a team of people um, creating these kinds of regenerative designs at scale. That's epic. Are you considering getting uh, accreditation through any universities so that maybe they could be partnerships? Yes, that's, that's part of the whole, it's part of the whole idea of going through the whole process and pulling some academics into the chartering uh, circle. Yeah. Uh, into the, what we call the convener circle. Um, so that, you know, as we move forward, that we can, we can have that level of academic credibility and, uh, the Institute would hopefully be able to, you know, um, get to the point of partnering up with a couple major universities and offering this as a, um, almost like a master's level, um, master certificate kind of level. That's epic. I know that um, they're really scrambling um, transitioning into the online education space and uh, they're looking for, uh, yeah. for easy course offerings, uh, easy for them. <laughs> yeah. You know, they just hire us basically. Um, and, it's, and they don't have to pay us, you know, as an employee to do it. It's pretty incredible, um, the opportunities that are opening up. And I... I, I, I have seen it happen in my, my own work this year where Rutgers University, alarm, uh, Rutgers University professor, you know, uh, James White is recommending uh, my book, you know, to his students. And it's this uh, new era that we're entering in where these ideas 
are not just being given respect. These ideas are the ideas that are needed to move forward the stagnant academia in so many, in so many areas. They've hit the wall. They, they, they've run all, all the possibilities of chemical ag, you know, yes. and, and, and they run it into the ground. And uh, <laughs> there's a lot of this. And uh, we're, we're kind of at a, the end of illusions. We're kind of at yeah. the end of uh, playing games. And it's uh, the pragmatic, the real, uh, the, the, the actual, you know, the, the authentic. We, we, we've shifted into a new space and uh, not all of us are there yet. Uh, many of us see it starting happening or feel a deep hunger for it. And I hope that they, those who have that hunger have found this program and found your work now and uh, can start feeding themselves on it. <laughs>